0: welcome to abstract colon, the future of science i'm your host jeremy Ullman, and today as always we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research we recorded in the past you're listening in the present and we're discussing the future of science enjoy the show The following episode of Abstract will be discussing mental health disorders and suicide, which may be triggering for some. If you're struggling with your mental health, please seek help from a health professional. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard here on Abstract. Okay, time for the show. Welcome to episode 70. I'm thrilled to have our second ever panel discussion today, this time discussing the intersection of neuroscience and mental health. So we've got four grad students studying neuroscience, but with diverse research backgrounds and interests, and they are Claudia Bellavo, Candice Cannon, Tommy Markopoulos, and Liam O'Leary. All of today's guests have been trained at Neurolingo to deliver effective science presentations to public audiences. Neurolingo is a science outreach initiative founded and managed by graduate students in the Integrated Program in Neuroscience at McGill University. Welcome to the show, everybody. It is great to have you all here. Please introduce yourselves to the listeners. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me.
1: My name is Tommy Markopoulos, and I'm a second-year Master's of Science student in the Integrated Program in Neuroscience at McGill University. And my current research focuses on studying autism spectrum disorder preclinically by looking at behavior, signaling in the brain, and sleep. What do I wish I knew about mental health 10 years ago? I wish I knew how our mental health is very implicated with many other seemingly unrelated aspects of our lives things like nutrition, physical activity, and sleep.
2: Hey everyone, my name is Claudia, and I'm a PhD candidate at uh, McGill University studying neuroscience. I've always been super interested in mental health for personal reasons. I started out my career in a geriatric psychiatry lab, so studying the effects of mindfulness on symptoms of depression and anxiety, but in the elderly population. And now I'm in a molecular psychiatry lab, the Meshwar Lab, that focuses on the long-term effects of child abuse on the brain. Specifically, I'm trying to understand why severe abuse early in life often leads to depression and suicide. And a little fun fact, I love the brain so much that I once got a toe tattoo of its outline. What I wish I knew about mental health 10 years ago is that you don't need to wait until you're at rock bottom to go to therapy.
3: Hello. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. My name is Candice Canon. I am a master student at the McGill Group for Society Studies and I study the von Economo neurons in depression with a without a history of child abuse and schizophrenia. My research interests are mainly about mental health, especially depression and suicide, which is why I really wanted to work in my actual lab. Outside the lab, I am a huge fan of dance, especially salsa. I also like improvisation theater, and as I just arrived in Montreal in January 2021, I love discovering the beautiful landscapes of Quebec by doing hiking and canoeing. Ten years ago, I wish I knew that every human being can have his mental health challenged at some point and it must be taken seriously. For some people, it can eventually lead to mental disorders and the consequences can be devastating. I wish I knew that mental health is not the concern of weak or crazy people, that there is no crazy people, just regular human beings that need to take care of their mental health at every point of their life. I have the sensation that mental health is just starting to be taken more seriously in our society. There is a lot of stigmatization and discrimination when people suffer from a mental disorder. I think that I would probably have accepted myself better knowing that 10 years ago.
4: Hi, my name's Liam O'Leary, and um, I've finished my neuroscience PhD. I've, I've flown the coop, I've done, A good solid 10 years of neuroscience work. I did a master's in neuroscience, four years master's in in the UK, and then I flew over to Canada, just finished my PhD, studying the anatomical differences in the brains of people with depression who died by suicide. If you're interested in anything I say today, just Google my name, all my research is open access, and you can find ways to contact me too. But generally, I've been looking at the anatomy of depression, and I've always been interested in how research can help alleviate the psychological suffering. And my PhD project showed for me that feelings are very malleable physical things that exist in the brain. So after my PhD, I've come back home to England. I have re- began work as a medical writer, which, uh, by the way, I love. And in my free time, I practice yoga, I vlog about books on YouTube, and I volunteer at a charity bookshop. Ten years ago, what I wish I knew about mental health is the distinction between research in psychoanalysis, forensic pathology, and biological psychiatry. Because when you're young, those all sound like the same thing.
0: Thank you all so much. Wow, this is overwhelming and amazing at the same time. I know we're not going to get to touch on all of your knowledge and experience and all of the amazing things that you're interested in and have researched over time, but we're going to try and at least scratch the surface. So I want to open up the discussion first and foremost with a big question that we can then use to dial into more specific paths of discovery. So first question right off the bat, I want to know how do we, how do you study the neuroscience of mental health?
1: So that's a great question. And I think one of the beauties about neuroscience is the fact that so many different technologies and methods are used to study the same thing. For instance, I use preclinical models. So I use uh, mice, for example, in my research. There are certain mental illnesses that are characterized with very specific, for example, genetic uh, modifications or mutations. Since we have characterized these mutations, we can introduce these into mice, and then now we have these mice that are models, that are perfect genetic models of mental illness. And it's by using these mice that we can do things like look at how they behave, how they act differently, what differences they have in the brain compared to mice that aren't affected with these same mutations. And although, you know, it's not a perfect representation of a, of a human, it really lets us look at it from a zoomed in lens.
2: Yes, I think it's really interesting looking at mental health in um, a mouse model or a preclinical model, as you mentioned. And so Liam and Condis and I actually work with postmortem human brains. So we actually are very privileged to have samples from specifically humans that have suffered from various psychiatric disorders. And I think what's a bit different between the animal models and the you know human brain that we have access to is the sort of complex identity and the complex situations that humans are involved in. Whereas like, you know, mice are in a cage, in a lab, they get fed at a certain time by a certain person, which is amazing when you're looking at genetics. But I think when you're looking at something, for example, like depression, where there's more complex involvement in the environment, and it's not just genetic factors, I think it's really important to have this human specimen whether it be blood brain things like that
0: so in terms of uh, genetics and environment kind of coming together and influencing our mental health is there one or the other that has a a greater influence in the human population
3: mental health is an intertwining between three factors that are the environment the genetic that will underlie the biology of our brain and that we study in our lab with uh, claudia and liam and there is also the epigenetic, which is the modifications occurring in the expression of the genes in response to the environment. So the genes mm-hmm. are not modified by the environment, but their expression does. So if you want to study the neuroscience of mental health, we can study those factors. And with the postmortem brain tissues, we study the biological part. It's not easy to know which factor is the most important in mental health. like they all have their importance and they all impact each other.
2: So actually, I think that we can study um, the interaction between environment and genetics in like a human postmortem brain, for example. Specifically, we can compare different groups. So for example, we can compare a psychiatrically healthy control, so somebody who did not have any mental illness. And that gives us sort of a baseline of what the brain should look like at the anatomical level, for example, or genetic level. And then you can take a second group that has depression, and then that would allow you to compare the genetic makeup of this brain in response to what causes depression at the genetic level and then you can have a third group that includes an environmental factor that's different between so like child abuse for example so the third group allows you to compare child abuse depression and the genetics right so we have both environmental and genetics together which i think is pretty cool
1: so i think there's certainly you know advantages to different models so for example a preclinical model versus an you know, a brain sample. There is a lot of criticism about preclinical models regarding how translatable it is uh, to, to humans. But one advantage of using these preclinical models is the ability to perform more invasive experiments. And, you know, certainly everything is ethically regulated. It's a very important part of research. For example, with, with mice, one thing that we are able to do is impose specific genetic mutations and then in the same mouse identify what behavioral effect manipulating different parts of brain signaling have whereas working with postmortem samples although i agree, it absolutely it's more translatable you don't necessarily have the benefit of uh, seeing what the direct consequences are of you know specific uh, perturbations in you know normal brain functioning
0: so what are some of the differences between healthy brains and unhealthy or we can call them maybe disordered brains in terms of their function and in terms of their form
3: i think It will really depend on the disorder. Every mental disorder has its own characteristics and there is a range of psychiatric disorders. Globally, we can say that the neurotransmission is impacted as well as the expression of some key genes that will be really specific to the mental disorder. For now, the exact comprehension of each mental disorder is not complete, but the knowledge of those illnesses is improving and researchers keep discovering new aspects. Yeah.
4: Yeah, so exactly. Genetic factors are massively different between mental health conditions. I mean, for example, in schizophrenia, you have a a gene called DISC-1, which is very strongly inherited and has quite a strong influence on schizophrenia. But when you look at depression, there's a whole bunch of genes which seem to be involved in certain types of people and not in other types of people, so we don't really even know whether these words we use for mental health, like schizophrenia and depression are even talking about the same thing in different people. We kind of we just we've got like this blanket mm. image of how someone acts, and then we kind of hope that in the the millions of well, yeah, I mean there are millions of genes in the- well, I'm not sure if they're all active in the brain, but like you've got thousands and thousands of relevant genes that could be active in any condition and people are so complicated that within and between mental health conditions, it's very hard to to pin kind of genetic differences. But um, my PhD, I did find that there was a big change in a certain type of brain cell in depression, but this type of brain cell, in my thesis, I, I looked into other mental health conditions, it's not that affected in alcoholism, it's not that affected in schizophrenia, it's not that affected in bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, all the postmortem studies for these conditions, these cells aren't as involved in the same way. They're not involved at the same extent as they are in major depressive disorder.
0: What was this cell, by the way?
4: It's called the astrocyte. It's a star-shaped cell. They kind of just haven't been looked at too much. They're about 10% of all the brain cells you've got. So they're quite important, and they basically feed the neurons' energy. For some reason in depression, you, it seems like they're, they're reduced in number. Also, the neurons don't seem to be decreased in number consistently in depression, so it's it's very complicated. Like between conditions, you have different brain cell types that are affected, and then you wonder all the genes that are involved in those brain cells are probably the key players in the condition. But then that's that's like the beginning of the story. Then it's like, how do you turn that around? How do you go into that? So.
1: One thing I find uh, really interesting is that, you know, it's, it's on many mental illnesses that are generated by single mutations, but there are some. So, for example, some autism spectrum disorders come to be as a result of a single mutation. And what I find really, really interesting is how much it can really affect the brain and in such different ways. You know, a single mutation that can lead to autism spectrum disorder can have effects on things like the size of different brain structures on how different neurotransmitters signal across the brain on how different brain regions are connected and now if we take this in the context of other mental illnesses that are impacted by so many different things it really allows us to appreciate how different the brains are uh, of people suffering from mental illness compared to uh, those who are not
2: we really need to stress the importance that mental illnesses or disorders are so heterogeneous so they're so different. They present themselves in different ways. You can have two different people diagnosed with schizophrenia who have very different symptoms, but they still meet the number of symptoms that they need in each category to get this diagnosis. So if we look at somebody who has depression, we can see one person have a weight gain and one person have a weight loss, but they both count as one symptom towards the diagnosis of depression. What we really need to understand here is that when we research mental illness and when we, you know, are trying to figure out the neuroscience behind these disorders is that we really need to understand that the part that we're looking at is not the only part. There's so many facets to each uh, mental disorder and I think that's why we need collaborations between animal and human work, preclinical and postclinical. We need to follow up with patients that do receive treatments, check their brains before and after using, you know, magnetic uh, resonance imaging, for example. But yeah, I think that's sort of how we can sum up like everyone's uh, expertise here.
1: Yes, I think that's a really important point, Claudia, because I think that one thing that isn't necessarily talked about enough is how heterogeneous these mental illnesses are. And, you know, it is important to have certain diagnostic criteria in order to classify people suffering from mental illness. Because, for example, if we didn't have these things, it would be harder to, you know, think of treatment options that work for these specific symptoms. But at the same time, it's also important to acknowledge that these diagnostic criteria are also limiting uh, from a scientific perspective. And what I mean by this is that for trying to find size differences of a specific brain region in people suffering from x mental disorder. If all the people that we group into this cohort, they are grouped in only because they share the same symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that the same genetic causes or, you know, underlying biological causes are the same. And so this wouldn't necessarily mean that we will find these robust differences, even if they do exist.
0: I've always been curious to understand what makes it into the list of mental health disorders and what doesn't. With my background in cognitive science, I came to learn about a lot of different ways that the brain can malfunction or that it can function differently than, it, it, than its normal operating self, one of which is like speech disorders. But when you hear about someone who has trouble producing speech in a particular context or they have trouble understanding speech, we don't necessarily refer to that in the same way as depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. So I'm kind of curious to know what the distinction is between when you have trouble with your mental health and when you just have some perturbation in your brain health overall. Is It seems like even within the mental health discussion, in terms of talking about mental disorders, there's already a lot of uncertainty about where lines can be drawn, but it seems like some things don't even get into the discussion. Why is that?
2: So I think it has a lot to do on how much um, a certain disorder or perturbation in brain health affects your daily life. So one of the main characteristics of all mental disorders that are classified in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual which we use to diagnose people with mental health disorders, the big sort of underlying symptom in each category is that it impedes your daily life and it causes issues with your social life, with your family life, with your work, stuff like that. Like it's it's, it's really the fact that it really impedes your life.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to maybe just push back for fun a little bit here, even though it is a little bit off topic, There, there's... Um... A speech disorder known as Broca's aphasia, which essentially uh, it it just totally ravages your ability to produce words. Very often, you will know what you want to say, but actually, actually producing those words is very, very difficult. And I would I've actually seen videos of people who suffer from this condition, and communication is like really, really affected in 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 a serious way. And I would assume that that would have huge impact on lifestyle and you know job prospects and just who who you can interact with. And so that was why I was curious, because everything you just described seems to fit something like a very intense speech disorder, not just like a speech impediment, but something that's actually rooted in some kind of issue in the brain in terms of the way neurons and brain structures are, are, are connected. I wonder if there's something else, Claudia, that you haven't quite hit on yet, that if anybody else knows some kind of je, je ne sais quoi that the mental health disorders have, that we wouldn't include in other brain health disorders?
2: Yeah, that's actually a great uh, question and point, something I've never really thought of.
4: I think if there is a difference between neurological and psychiatric conditions, it's that we don't fully know why psychiatric conditions occur. I think maybe with time, when we have the research, we can. An example of this is perhaps even the neurological condition of Parkinson's disease, which has always clearly been seen as a a motor condition where you you can't initiate movement recent advances in neurostimulation you can implant electrodes in this is called deep brain stimulation and you just turn on like almost like an app like a phone and suddenly the person starts moving and of course it is a movement disorder still but i think this technology now that we see that some people can have a purely reversible symptoms when this thing is on has suddenly made us think of it more as a uh, a motor, like a, a a muscle condition, more more of a a movement condition, less less of this mysterious brain condition that we have. I guess what I'm saying, and this is this is actually quite disheartening, the fact that psychiatric treatment is not always successful, and we don't know why it works, is why they're different. For example, antidepressants like Prozac, SSRIs, they only came into to effect because they were side effects for, I've forgotten exactly which condition it was, but it was like a, it was something like a lung condition or a kidney condition that they, they applied Prozac to and suddenly they found the people were also happier. And then they thought, oh, sure. let's try this in people who have depression. And, and that's how SSRIs came into being.
0: We're actually going to come back briefly to SSRIs a bit later in the show. You're going to hear Tommy give a brief description about it. But essentially, SSRIs are a drug that operates on the neurotransmitter serotonin in the brain. SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. It's a lot of words, but essentially when we have the neurotransmitter in our brain, it is active when it's being communicated between neurons in what we call the synapse. Our brain also acts to pull this neurotransmitter out of the synapse, so it's not constantly acting in our brain. The reuptake inhibitor means that we're stopping this reuptake of the serotonin. So the serotonin hangs out longer in between the neurons in what we call the synapse, And so we feel the effect of serotonin for longer. Serotonin often being associated with good feelings, positive affect.
4: Something I wanted to work in when I came back to the UK is um, new antidepressants being developed. And a lot of the psychedelic scene, which Tommy has a big part in, and I'm sure he could chip in after this. Like psychedelics are now coming into effect. And I think it's just because for a long time, people have just taken them and thought, it works and then we're like why aren't we studying it but then as soon as we figure out how we can do this reversal then yeah they might they might just be like you said we might see them like speech conditions they might just be mm-hmm. things that we can uh, jump in and try and correct it's an
0: interesting perspective yeah both the fact that We can think of mental disorders as residing purely in the brain, as opposed to being like something like a motor issue, which involves brain connecting with body or a speech issue, brain connecting with like the vocal anatomy. Mm -hmm. These Mm -hmm. mental disorders are really just kind of localized in the brain. Mm -hmm. There's no part of your body specifically that's affected by schizophrenia.
2: So yes and no, if you do look at like autism, for example, I think on the spectrum, there are motor movements that are very implicated in this disorder, right? So there's definitely a link between brain and body. And we also know that like the gut, brain axis. So like you have a nerve that extends from your brain to your intestines. And this is actually quite implicated in depression. Like we're learning more and more about it. So like the microorganisms that live in your intestinal tract can actually affect your brain. So I think it is a full body disorder. Yeah, maybe not like a motor disorder.
1: Yeah. So actually one of the criteria in the DSM for autism spectrum disorder is the presence of repetitive behaviors. But I think what you were talking about, Jeremy, there's even a better example. So again, this is preclinical. One type of autism spectrum disorder is this thing called Fragile X syndrome. And it results because of one gene that isn't being, you know, the proteins coming from this gene aren't being expressed. And so one characteristic of these mice is that they kind of look like they have a, you know, webbed feet, webbed toes. And, you know, I'm not saying this is necessarily implicated in the mental disorder side of this, but just to your point about there being, you know, very concrete physical characteristics relating to mental disorders, I think this is a, you know, a really good example of one.
0: Okay. All right. Fascinating stuff so far. We've spoken about a lot of different kinds of disorders. I know you all have dipped your toes into the world of depression in terms of your research. We've also spoken about how there are different criteria for diagnosing depression. I guess I want to get a clear understanding of how we define clinical depression and also what are the catalysts or exacerbators of it.
3: So clinical depression is defined as a mood disturbance that lasts for at least uh, two weeks. And that can be accompanied by a lack of self-esteem, a lack of hope, of trust, a lack of sleep or disturbances of sleep and appetites, anhedonia, which is a lack of interest for any activities that was previously considered enjoyable before, and a feeling uh, of guilt, among many other negative symptoms. People with a personal or familial history of depression have a higher risk to develop depression. There is also social factors like poverty, the sex or the gender of the person. For example, women have more risk to develop depression. And there is contextual factors like uh, a history of abuse or aggression, a trauma, the loss of a loved one, or again, discrimination, harassment, stress, or again, a professional environment with risk uh, pressure. So all of those environmental factors have a risk to make the people develop a depression. This, and of course, depending on their genetic, someone will be more or less sensitive to all of those uh, factors.
0: That's a lot of factors. I, it almost sounds like it's impossible to avoid developing depression at some point in your life if there are so many different ways
2: you can go
3: about it. Yes, yes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a ton of symptoms. Just one thing that Condis forgot to mention is that you like to be clinically diagnosed, you need to have some of these symptoms for two weeks, but specifically you need to have five. So five of these symptoms to be diagnosed by a clinician. What's kind of interesting to me is that, you know, let's say you have four, even though your life is impacted, you don't get clinically diagnosed, right? Like you don't get the label of Mm -hmm. I'm depressed, I have a reason for why I feel like this. So I think the way that the clinical diagnoses happen right now is not sufficient. And I think it's also important to understand that you can be depressed and you can have a diagnosis of depression it's two mm-hmm. kind of different things i really think because of how stressful society has become because of factors of uh inequality in our society and around the world you know it's pretty hard to avoid a period of depression
0: what do you all think the future of diagnosis is going to look like if it's not going to be like uh one two three and four means you don't get the label and five means you do or six means you do and as scientists and as researchers and potentially clinicians what do you think about these labels are they more helpful than not are there issues that arise here with this very like uh kind of ones and zeros way of thinking about either having or not having a condition in terms of access to you know medication and care and the impact on identity it's a lot of questions right here i I just as, as a bit of an outsider i'm curious to know how you think about the diagnostic statistical manual and how we actually diagnose these mental disorders
3: it's not easy to answer this question because like, it's more related to medicine and psychiatrists. But something related to the diagnosis of depression is that right now researchers try to find a way to diagnose depression through biomarkers to find a more rigorous way to determine if someone should be considered depressed or not. Right now, they're doing, researchers do research about that to find some specific biomarkers that through urine or again through blood could be detected to say, okay, this person is depressed or not. If it works, it will really be revolutionary in the diagnosis of, uh, of depression.
0: That would be really crazy if you could just pee into a cup and then a couple of weeks later, you know exactly what your condition is. That does sound like the future.
2: <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty cool, and uh, there definitely is research that's bringing us forward to this. I think that's why research is so important. In 2019, there was this paper where they put a cap, like of electrodes on your head, called an EEG, which basically just picks up the electricity that's passing along your brain. And they looked at you know tons and tons of people with or without a diagnosis of depression, and they were able to see that there's sort of a fingerprint in the depressed brain so this already brings us like a huge step forward but again this doesn't answer the question of whether this is a clinical diagnosis like do we have to do this test like every six months to see if the person is still depressed Mm -hmm. or whether the person's just in a depression now so i think i think it's a gray line that we won't be able to actually know the answer
0: yeah it's making me think about whether when you're born you have a brain that is like liable to become depressed Or if you could be born with a brain that's just like, that's not really going to happen. I think I'm maybe hinting more at like genetics, right? Because you come into the world and then the environment really starts to act.
2: So I did a minor of psychology in undergrad, which is why I kind of, I feel like I can answer this question a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's something called the stress diathesis model. So basically this means it's kind of like a two hit model where you could have a predisposition to a disorder. So specifically, let's talk about depression. So you can have this genetic predisposition. And then that doesn't mean that you're going to get depression necessarily, because like Liam said before, there's multitudes of genes that are involved in depression and like their expression changes. So you need the second hit. So that would be like the thing that happens. So like a stress, like Condis was saying, like being at work being very very stressed uh, or somebody maybe dying in your family and like that's the second hit and that's kind of what propels you into this depression but we also know that people without a genetic predisposition can also just have a one hit like a, a death of like their partner for example and still go into a depression so it's really just it's very complicated and uh we we need really like much more funding in the mental health realm so we could really figure out like what's really going on here and i think what would be really cool is like super longitudinal studies so where we just every person's born they get a therapist when they're born who follows them (laughs) asks them questionnaires like every maybe year or every two years so that we can really follow and see like what exactly is happening in people's lives that lead them to this diagnosis or feeling of depression.
0: That'd be quite the undertaking.
2: Yeah. Too long for any these... of us. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah that, that would, that would be, I guess, if we can kind of idealize the world for a second. Yes. If every single person could be followed for the duration of their entire life, we'd probably figure out a lot about how the brain works, not just in terms of mental health, but in terms of everything, infinite resources are not among us at the moment.
3: Yeah, the difficulty is that everyone is different from their behavior or from their biology. For some people, they will have all of the risk factor in their life, but they will never develop depression.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Claudia, you mentioned before that there was this study where we kind of put this EEG cap on the brain. We measured the brains of people with depression and without, and we saw this kind of fingerprint. This leads me to believe that maybe there is some location in the brain where mental health kind of emanates from? Is there any like location-based instantiation of mental health in the brain? Can we actually look in there and and see where it radiates out of? Like, Is is that a thing?
2: So contrary to popular belief, almost the whole brain is implicated in everything that you do or everything that you think Mm -hmm. in some way. But for example, mental health, Um, issues usually arise in what we call the limbic system. So the limbic system is comprised of the hippocampus, the amygdala, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the prefrontal cortex, you know, so it's a big sort of circle. And so those were a lot of scientific words, but basically it's just a bunch of places in the middle of your brain that then radiate to the front of your brain and sort of make this what we call a circuit, I know a lot of psychiatric illnesses do have differences in these specific areas versus, for example, your occipital cortex, which is like at the back of your brain, which is responsible for your eyes. We usually use that as a control region, for example, because we can see like, okay, we don't see this astrocyte decrease in the visual cortex, which is in the back in the occipital lobe, but we do see it in the prefrontal cortex.
0: Okay, so I'm actually glad that you mentioned that uh, that there, there are more regions implicated, but specifically that this circuit that's kind of sitting at the center of the brain that I think kind of helps even address the question I had earlier about you know speech pathologies, where there, there are specific regions of the brain that aren't any of the ones you just mentioned, where a lot of speech processes are housed in, in the brain, or at least kind of the speech centers. And so because that's outside of this limbic system, it doesn't necessarily fit the criteria for mental health disorders does anybody here have a, a counter example here it's like is there any other mental disorder that we find you know has interesting effects on brain activity or structure or function outside the limbic system
4: one of the main problems is no one knows what brain region if you get like physical damage to it could it make you depressed because a lot of people have brain surgery and sometimes um people get depressed afterwards as a result as a side effect but it's never quite consistent a study recently went back and looked at those studies where someone had had a surgery in a brain region and then they did brain imaging on this person and they 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 were like what's different about the brain now that they've lost this brain region that might tell us about depression and they found that there was a loss of activity in something called the default mode network
0: If you're interested in learning more about the Default Mode Network, we've already touched on it in tremendous detail in episode 20 with Alex Bailey. So check it out.
4: Which is a very complicated way of saying that when you're doing absolutely nothing, this brain region was acting differently. And that brain region was the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex was that region. So it seems as if in depression, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for whatever reason, stops acting like it does when you're just doing absolutely nothing. So We don't fully know what it normally does, but it's just not being active relative to the other brain regions in the way that it normally does. That's the real problem with mental health conditions, that there's not really a region that gets affected, but it's the way the regions interact with each other in our daily lives that gets affected.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I think one important distinction that has to be made is that, you know, we've all heard many times correlation doesn't equal causation. And so even though we find, for example, as Claudia was mentioning, changes in some limbic system functioning in, for example, people suffering from depression, it doesn't necessarily mean that the reason they are suffering from depression is because of these changes in limbic system functioning. They have done studies where they cause an impairment in the specific brain region to see if they could recapitulate the same behavioral effects as we see in humans and the short answer is it's, it's not that simple that perhaps that what we're seeing in the limbic system is just you know downstream is just a a consequence of the real root of what's underlying depression.
0: Yeah the way that Liam was describing this kind of secondhand effect made it seem like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex which I think it's, it's kind of like on the side of the forehead like near the temples maybe a little bit more forward something around that mm-hmm. region like that part of the brain is almost empathetic towards the, the, the part of the brain that had the surgery and it's like I, I, I feel for you now I will kind of take on some of that burden and that has some larger scale mm. effect
2: we don't really know what's first right like the chicken or the egg so that's actually why we need animal models because with animal models we can give the chicken and see if the egg happens or we can give the egg and see if the chicken <laughs> happens whereas in humans well we don't know what's first so we look at the thing that's second and try to figure out what was first
1: Actually, to tie this back, the reason they discovered, you know, Broca's aphasia is because a long, long time ago, they did, um, you know, they would remove parts of the brain for people that were suffering from epilepsy. And so they found that, you know, what was generating these seizures was a very specific part of the brain that they would remove. And so it so happened that when they would remove this part of the brain, Broca's area, they noticed that people, you know, started having these speech problems. And so they concluded that this brain region must be important or it's necessary rather to produce, you know, normal speech. Uh, However, what we're realizing now is that Mm. perhaps they looked at it a bit too simply that they weren't really dissecting as precise an area as they initially thought. And further, you know, studies have tried replicating it by imposing these lesions in Broca's area. And, you know, it's not as clear cut as it really seemed to be. So, you know, you learn in your classes as though Broca's area, if this part is damaged, you have trouble producing speech, where in reality, it's really, really not that simple.
0: This is all just kind of feeding back into this idea that we don't necessarily have very specific functions, specific parts of the brain, but everything is highly interconnected. And when one part of the brain gets damaged, other ones either take over or they experience that damage and interpret it in a different way. And there are these other kind of secondhand effects on the way that we think and act and behave and process the world.
2: Yeah. AKA neuroplasticity. One of my Ooh. favorite things.
0: Neuroplasticity. Tell me more.
2: So basically, just so everyone knows, neuroplasticity um, is very much what Jeremy was saying, that if something gets hurt, the next part of your brain can kind of take over. So we need to understand that in childhood, where our brains are pretty what we call plastic, this means that, you know, it's easy to learn language, it's uh, easy to go into a new situation and figure out what you're doing changing schools is not as hard meeting new friends is not as hard all of these things and this is kind of because our brain connections are still young as well so they don't know the circuit that they need to make so they make connections and then these little cells in our brain come and eat them up so those connections no longer exist so really like childhood is a form of neuroplasticity which means our brain is very malleable very changeable very influenceable and when we're adults, it's not so changeable.
0: Um, Is that why at the ripe age of 26, I'm so stubborn?
2: I would think so. You know, the the sentence like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh It's explained by neuroplasticity.
0: So we see neuroplasticity in dogs too?
2: For sure. For sure. Yeah. But also want to point out, this doesn't mean we can't learn new things as we age. It's just maybe we need more effort. Maybe we need more specific practice of this thing versus just being able to pick it up in one second
0: i know we kind of hinted earlier i think liam you, you you hinted at tommy's focus on psychedelics and the role of psychedelics in research i'm curious to know if the jury's out on the efficacy and the utility of psychedelics in treating things like depression what do we know right now
1: so the jury's most definitely not out I think it's safe to say that. What I will also say is that it's really promising. So we've known for a long time that psychedelics, so things like LSD, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, these are all compounds that can have really really profound effects on one's mental health. Back in the 60s a lot a lot of research was happening with these compounds and really promising research. So for example, Alcoholics Anonymous, which we still know today, endorsed the use of LSD in the treatment of alcoholism. And so, wow. you know, their therapeutic effects were well known. However, for political reasons and their association with the counterculture movement, there's a, lar- a big hi- hiatus in psychedelic research, starting with the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. So this stopped all psychedelic research. If you were an advocate for psychedelics and science, you were an outcast, you were a pariah. So thankfully, this is starting to change and it has been for the last about 10 or 20 years. And although it started slow, we are, you know, making really nice revelations about how psychedelics could be used for mental health. Actually, right now, to my knowledge, ketamine is the only one that's approved by the FDA. So ketamine, but rather esketamine, which is a more potent version of ketamine, is approved to treat treatment-resistant depression. So this is something relatively recent. So what, what is treatment resistant depression? I think it was Liam that alluded to it earlier. Uh, SSRI, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These are compounds that you know, to put it simply, increase the amount of serotonin in your brain, and this helps people with depression because one thing, uh, because serotonin, you know, people kind of look at it as the happy neurotransmitter. If you have more serotonin in the brain, again, this is very very a simple way to look at it, and it helps your mood and uh, helps with depression. But one bad thing about SSRIs is things like uh, you become very tolerant to them. They take long to take effect. And in some people, they just don't respond to SSRIs. So what they found is that ketamine has been especially effective in treating people who are resistant to treatments like SSRIs and that suffer from depression. Mm -hmm. There's also very promising research for substances like LSD and psilocybin. And what I think is the most interesting thing is that SSRIs are something you have to continually take You only see the effect after a while. I think it's a few weeks where you only start seeing the antidepressant uh, effects of SSRIs. Whereas psychedelics, studies have shown, for example, that two doses of psilocybin, also in the context of psychotherapy, help depressive symptoms in people for up to six months. Uh, And this is after two two administrations. Uh, And not just that, they found that there was no adverse effects long term. And so to me this means that these might be really really promising compounds uh, because it's not something that you might have to you know keep taking at the same time i think it's also important to mention that there are serious consequences associated with the use of psychedelics it's not just like they have these strong therapeutic abilities there are serious risks we had spoke before about uh, you know genetic predispositions so people who who have a genetic predisposition to schizophrenia for example are advised not to take psychedelics because it might trigger a psychotic episode or schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to, you know, advocate that everyone should take psychedelics. It would really help everyone. But what I am trying to say is that there is very promising research and we shouldn't be so quick to neglect this research just because of the stigma associated with these drugs.
0: Okay, yeah, thanks for that caveat. Definitely important that we don't want to say, go out, get yourself some mushrooms and, and have a field day. This, is, this should all be done in a clinical setting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Talk to your doctor. Abstract, in the future of science is not liable for any <laughs> behavior that results from listening to this episode. But of course, thank you
2: for all being here. Wow. I think also important is the fact that there's a specific dose that you would need. And like you mentioned, psychotherapy, like it's with a therapist. It's not like alone in your room or outside mm-hmm. in the wild. It's a very controlled situation. Got it.
4: And in my review, I did propose a method for how ketamine could work on the astrocytes in depression, and there are big papers coming out about astrocytes and ketamine. So yeah, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of ketamine and LSD having some effect in depression research.
2: Yeah, and what's really interesting too about this S-ketamine that um, Tommy and Liam are talking about is that it's actually available in the States by a nasal spray. I like to call it the first treatment for suicide because right now it's being administered mostly to people who end up in the ER after a suicide attempt because it's so fast acting like uh, Tommy was saying, but it's not long lasting. So specifically this ketamine, it's, you know, two weeks and then you're back to exactly the same place that you were.
1: And just on the topic of suicide. So a study published, you know, a few years ago, they did a an observational study. So they looked at 190,000, more than 190,000 people. Some of them had taken psychedelics in their lifetime and some of them had not. And what they looked at is the long-term consequences of this. So they looked at people that have taken psychedelics in their life. Did they have an increased chance of developing certain mental conditions? What they found is first of all, that there was no increase in the onset of the mental illnesses they were looking at. Second, they actually found a decrease for two things. They found a decrease for suicide attempts and they found a decrease for the development of psychiatric distress. So, again, important to proceed with caution, talk about psychedelic research, but, you know, there are studies that show that they might actually be beneficial in the long term.
3: Yeah, I think it's really important to be cautious since uh, it has been reported that some people that take psychedelics with no medical assistance can have a very bad experience and present trauma because of those psychedelics.
0: Absolutely. That's a really great point. Yeah. Yeah. Candice, I actually did want to ask you about your research specifically. You haven't had a chance yet to tell us about the von Economo neurons, which I'm extremely curious about. Very funky name. What is the role of the von Economo neurons in your research and in their as far as their implication is concerned in mental health?
3: So the von Economo neurons haven't been that much studied in comparison to all of the other types of neurons in the brain or some other cells in the brain, like astrocytes, for example, that are non-neuronal cells. So the Von Econium neurons are a bit particular because they are not present in all species with a brain. They are only present in some species that present some uh, social abilities like human, great apes, elephants, and even raccoons. Hmm. And we cannot find them in rodents. So we cannot use rodents to study Von Economo neurons. Sadly. Sorry, Tommy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no Von
0: Economo for you.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is sad because rodents can be a really great model uh, of study. So the Von Economo neurons in humans are also not present in all the brains. They are only present in uh, four regions that are all related to social, emotion and uh, relations to other people. We don't have direct evidence of their function, but there is some hypothesized function related to some specific protein that they express or uh, some specific receptors. So their hypothesized function are around emotion, complex cognition like uh, trust, empathy, those kind of relation to others. They also could be related to direction, to reward and punishment, like it's the case for gambling, for example. Yeah. In a specific study, they capture those neurons von Economo using a laser to be able to determine what genes were expressed specifically in those neurons in comparison to other neurons in the same regions. And what they found is that naturally, in the von Economo neurons, some specific genes related to substance abuse, depression, schizophrenia, and some other brain disorders are naturally overexpressed in von Economon neurons. So maybe a disturbance at the level of the von Economon neurons could eventually have some consequences at the brain level and induce uh, schizophrenia or depression are the opposite, like maybe schizophrenia or depression could induce a dysregulation of the genes in the Von Economo neurons.
0: I think that's actually really interesting in terms of the implication in things like rodents who don't have these Von Economo neurons. If you could see the same kind of symptoms in two different species, one that has the neurons and one that doesn't, that it, it can't just be the Von Economo neurons.
3: It cannot just be the von Economo neurons, but because it is a complex interaction between different structures of the brain, the von Economo neurons could play a role in those mechanisms since they are hypothesized to be involved in those complex relations to others and to the uh, environment. And because those neurons seem to have dysfunction and that the environment can have such an impact on mental health, they could play uh, a role, and that's what I try to figure out uh, in my master.
0: You didn't mention autism, but you actually did speak to the social side of the von Economa neurons. I think, Tommy, you did a bit of research on autism. Did you ever hear about these neurons? And I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that autism didn't come up here in the discussion about the von Economa No, neurons. so
1: this is actually the first I hear of uh, these types of neurons. Like I said, I use mouse models to study autism. And right, so, right like i said we introduce these genetic mutations that in theory recapitulate autism so if mice aren't able to express these neurons maybe that's why i haven't i haven't heard of them
0: maybe we could implant von economo neurons human von economo neurons into the rodent brain we could take the raccoon von economo
2: neurons put it into the- So we'd probably be able to actually <laughs> actually yeah
4: they they did it with human astrocytes but the astrocytes From my my research, like the astrocytes, and also previous research, astrocytes in humans are about three times as big. But if you take a human astrocyte and you put it in a mouse brain, it only gets like two times as big as a, all relative to a standard mouse astrocyte. So the same cell does get bigger, but clearly something about the mouse brain keeps it still not quite a human cell. So if we could take human cells and we put them into the mouse brain, there'd still be a little mouse-like. But
1: does the mouse not reject this foreign tissue
0: being introduced into the brain?
4: I think they found a way around it. But yeah, I think that's why it took so
0: long. They found a way around it. Like, mouse, look over there. While well, we quickly inject some neurons. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> what's going on?
4: No, I think it was, yeah, I can't remember, like they packaged it in a vector. I do
2: remember seeing some papers where cells can actually integrate into rodent circuitry. But the question still remains, like, is it the same as if it was in a human? Like, I don't know Uh that I would trust this as representing a human experience now that they have these non-mouse specific neurons
1: absolutely but i, I think it'll be interesting for example you know we impose these Economo neurons into a mouse and we see this mouse display more depressive like behavior for instance yeah i do not know if this was possible candace you might have to chat about a potential collaboration after this <laughs> <laughs>
2: there we go Yeah, what is
0: networking here
2: oh just one quick thing uh we don't actually take like the full neuron from the human to put it into the mouse we would like take the neuron make a stem cell that's like a neuron with the same genes and then put that into a rodent.
0: Excellent. And if anybody listening right now is interested in stem cell research, just released an episode a couple weeks ago, episode 68, with Jonathan Brassard on that. So feel free to go peruse episode 68 on stem cells. Thank you for that, Claudia. I am very curious to know, after all of this, are there any advantages to having a mental illness. Are there mental illnesses out there that bestow some some quality or some some mental process that is actually beneficial? It almost seems like it's kind of counterintuitive, but is it possible?
2: I think a hundred percent yes. Definitely okay. there's some positive aspects of having a mental disorder. So I kind of try like not to say illness, because yes, you're not the same as a neurotypical individual, but you're also, you're still human, you're still just as lovable, you're still just as impactful in society. You've still got Von
0: Economa neurons.
2: Yeah. So really, I think there's many positive aspects that can be taken from it in a sense that if we look at autism spectrum disorder, you know, some people high on the spectrum also are geniuses, are brilliant, have composed the most beautiful music we've ever heard, have done the coolest math equations we've ever seen. Like that's a really big plus that like me as a neurotypical individual would not be able to to do. In terms of other Disorders, like we can get a real sense of different realities from people with schizophrenia, for example, who are living in a different reality at some moments. I think there's a lot to learn about this. I don't think anyone with a mental disorder should be stigmatized or should be like a pariah in society. Like, I think it's really important to integrate everyone in society, give everyone the resources and help that they need to be functioning. Um, and to be healthy and as happy as they can be, right?
0: I think that's a great answer. Yeah, I, I do like the idea of thinking about every individual as being someone who can talk about their experience and their perception of reality. Still a very philosophical question. What is reality? What is real? We're not going to go there because then we could go into another six and a half hour discussion. But just to say that everybody has their own unique experience, perspective, genetic background, biology, everything fitting together together to create their life experience.
1: Absolutely, and I, and I think we're moving away from distinguishing the experiences of people suffering from mental disorders as, as if there's something wrong with them. I think it we're just, the direction that we're moving is to you know acknowledge them as atypicalities. How, how is their experience unique to them? Not necessarily how is it inferior to a neurotypical individual. And so again going back to autism spectrum disorder one thing that is not necessarily characteristic but that we see with individuals with asd is that they're exceptionally good at paying attention to detail i would certainly say that's a plus yeah
3: i agree with claudia on the fact that it's important to integrate the person with mental disorder in our society their symptoms can be so devastating and heavy in their everyday life and in their relationship to others and I think that as much as the society will help them to integrate and accept them, as much as it's going to be possible for those person to retire something positive from their illness.
4: I've got a bit of a more cynical view. Sure. Even though back in the 70s, people normally wanted to call them mental conditions and try level the playing field. Although it seems like in society, we talk about mental health, like mental well-being. We're a lot better at talking about it now. I think in academia and like in actual therapy, like it's still a bit behind, but hopefully it'll catch up. I think definitely mental health condition can be empowering, but I think it might only be so because you can't chill out when you're struggling and the way of getting through and coping is becoming really good at something. Like it's Mm. kind of a way of conquering whatever struggle you've got. It's that level of focus leads to some people being very good like I mean a lot of people who are very artistic people who are very good at expressing themselves it's kind of you you kind of work through that just to that battle you're just fighting that battle and from the outside a lot of us we see it and we think wow this person's really good but it's not so much like people are getting empowered it's 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 almost like you're in a position where you've got to Mm -hmm. do that thing you know it's it's almost like it's weirdly motivating Mm -hmm. What I'm saying here is very pessimistic and optimistic at the same time you've got to do this thing because it's all you've got but then like you do it and then you become the best but the same time I don't think it's like that. actually made them better it's the the position that put them into that struggle you know
0: my strength based approach oriented brain is telling me that that is overall a positive thing that I think personal empowerment is a good thing self motivation is good so thank you for twisting that to be more more positive than otherwise
1: just to go back to what uh one of the points you made Liam I have to give a little bit of pushback because I am optimistic that academia is moving into this direction where we do start having discussions about certain mental disorders in in a less stigmatizing way and I'll give an example that happened very recently so I submitted a paper to a journal and then the editor sent me back an article That was really, really helpful in instructing me on how to use language in a way that is less stigmatizing, especially in the context of autism spectrum disorder. And so this is just one journal that so happened to do this, but I'm optimistic that more will follow suit. And it's by, you know, using better language that does help destigmatize things. And, you know, we could tie this back to psychedelics before people said, you know, these illicit substances, they they would have these really, you know, nasty ways of describing them. Whereas now, you know, we have a much more unbiased manner of talking about these things.
0: Uh, I hope you're right. (laughs) I could listen to you folks chat amongst yourselves for days on end. Uh, It's been endlessly fascinating to hear you bounce off each other. And I am, I'm honored to have been part of this discussion today. Unfortunately, this eventually has to end and a great time to do that would be right about now. But I do want to thank each of you individually, Candice. This was excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Tommy as well. Thank you for all your perspective, Claudia. It was great to hear you chat and, fix errors along the way when you want to call people out and Liam, thank you so much for being in the UK and giving us that uh, mm-hmm. European perspective as well. So it, it was just great. Any final thoughts?
1: Yeah. Well, one thing I would say is I think conversations like this are extremely important. Having people from, you know, different backgrounds, discuss science really allows us to open our eyes and look at how we could tackle scientific questions using drastically different uh, perspectives and, and methodologies. And so thank you for having us, uh, Jeremy, podcasts like this do a fantastic job at allowing these conversations to happen and really opening people's eyes to how diverse the scientific world is. So thanks.
0: You're very welcome.
3: Thank you a lot for giving us this opportunity to share about our researches and to talk about those subjects that can still be considered as with a lot of prejudice. I think it's really important uh, to talk about it and to make it accessible to everyone, especially for the person that suffers from uh, mental disorders, for their families, but also for all of the other people in society that uh, will have maybe a a different consideration for them, have a better comprehension, have more empathy and share better with them and live with them uh, as they live with everybody else.
0: Excellent. Thank you.
2: Yeah, final thought for me is just keep the lines of communication open. Communicate with researchers in your life. Communicate with doctors in your life. Go to therapy. Whether you think you have a mental disorder or not, therapy can be helpful for anyone, even healthy-minded people. It's always good to get that outside perspective that, you know, is not your best friend telling you to text your ex-boyfriend at 6 a.m., right? (laughs) Definitely (laughs) would suggest therapy to everyone.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that perspective.
4: My final thought would be, um, it's great that we're making progress in this field, but uh, I think ultimately we'll get better and better drugs from this and it will help people. But people also need to think about other things outside of neuroscience that can help your mental well-being. Just going for a walk, trying to find a new interest, and connecting with people. These things are not scientific studies, but they are things that definitely also help whatever else there
0: is. Thank you for all those perspectives. One thing that keeps me feeling stable is socializing over Zoom with people and even just having this podcast and talking to, to new people every week. So thank you for being part of this community and for sharing your knowledge with me today. So, thank you all for being here. I wish you all a wonderful rest of your day, and I will be putting information about all of your labs, previous publications, where people can reach you in the show notes so we can keep the conversation going afterwards. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com this podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts So feel free to check us out around the internet until then, take it easy